right. Well, again, let me just say thank you to all the uh, relatives and family members and friends who uh, are here to, to partner with, celebrate with uh, someone in your life you care about as they dedicate their children to the Lord. We just think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I introduced myself a second ago, uh, but I am Jason. I'm Jason. I'm the pastor here at the church. And uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to get a chance to do that at some point. Um, so hopefully we can, we can meet up. Uh, but we are starting a brand new teaching series today called Limits, and we're going to start that in just a few moments. But before we do that, uh, I want to take a moment and share an important announcement with you regarding our church and my family. I know there's a lot of guests here today, uh, so just bear with us for a moment. But for those of us who call Hope City Church home, uh, an update about the church and my family. You're going to be getting a letter in the mail this week, but I wanted to share it with you in person while we're together. Uh, I just think that's the best way to do it. Um, but during the months of June and July, so a couple more weeks than we hit June when school gets out, during the months of June and July, uh, my family, Andrew and I and our four kids are going to be taking a sabbatical leave uh, from my pastoral duties here at Hope City Church. And this is a time away, eight weeks away um, from the normal rhythms of our life, but specifically from the normal rhythms of the job, the ministry job, ministry position that I have here uh, at Hope City. And some of you may be familiar with the idea of a sabbatical if you're connected to the academic world in some way. Uh, in the academic world, professors uh, will take time away. Um, a lot of times for them, that's a time for work or research or writing. Uh, but it's also common in, in churches as well. Uh, it's just scheduled time away to... Um, allow a chance for study or work or rest from the regular responsibilities of the job. It's not reactive, especially for us here uh, in this season for our family. It's not reactive. It's not because of anything negative. It's actually been very proactive. Uh, it goes back a while when we were celebrating uh, 10 years as the pastor here of the church. Uh, our elders began to talk about how um, we could do this the right way. We actually scheduled a sabbatical for last summer but like you, um, everything changed schedule-wise. So we had to postpone that until um, this summer. But our family's just gonna spend these eight weeks resting uh, mentally and emotionally from the last 13 years of ministry as the pastors here of Hope City Church. Uh, I'm only 37, I don't think that's old, I don't think. Uh, but I started, we started pastoring the church when we were 24, which I say all the time, I have no idea what the people who made that decision were thinking. Um, I had a lot more confidence then than I do now, I think, some naivete maybe, but, um, but 13 years as pastor. And listen, I just want to be honest with you and share my heart. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you I wasn't tired um, and that physically, you know, doing okay, doing fine, but, but just spiritually and emotionally and just my soul, like uh, just so looking forward to this time uh, to rest and to, and to recharge Pastoring this church is one of the greatest joys of my life. I, I, I say that often. I hope I do. Maybe I need to say it more. But it also comes with unique challenges. Uh, everybody's job is hard. Everybody uh, gets tired. But there are unique challenges to the vocational ministry. And so I'm just really thankful to the elders of the church to, to help set this up. And so if you have any questions for me, uh, you can ask those. Anyone on our team would be able to answer those 
for you. If you're just logistically wondering what that looks like or what's going to be happening at the church, whatever, we'll answer all those questions uh, for you. And like I said, you'll be getting a letter in the mail just so you can kind of a little more detailed could read about that. But I'm asking you to do two things specifically for me. This is my request to you. Uh, I'm going to be here three more weeks. I'm I'm preaching the next three weeks uh, uh, through Limits. And then we'll start our sabbatical and we're going to be gone for eight weeks. And I'm asking you to do two things. Number one, I'm asking you to pray for myself and for my family. And I mean this, not just some kind of praying for you type of thing, but really pray for our family when you think about us and pray that this time would be really beneficial uh, that it's, it's not just vacation, it's, it's a spiritual retreat, hopefully to rest and to recharge um, and to be renewed and uh, all of those things. Um, my prayer for the last few months has been that God would, uh, in, in whatever way he has planned, kind of reset our heart, fresh vision and the future. You know, it's, again, like I said, we started talking about this after 10 years, so a decade of ministry, now we're to 13 but, you know, just what God has in store for our church for the next 10 years, just another decade of ministry. Be praying for that um, and for our family because your prayers really make a difference. I want you to know that. But then the second thing I want to ask you to do, just practically speaking, is I want to ask you to keep coming to church. Um, this may be a little presumptuous on my part. I, I know that you know that church is way bigger than me. It's way bigger than my family. It's way bigger than my preaching. I know you know that, but we all kind of sometimes are guilty of thinking if the pastor's not going to be there, maybe I won't be there. Uh, I don't know if you ever think that, but uh, maybe you do. And so church is a family. It's not a service. Uh, Service is what we do, but church is a family. We're better together. We're better when you're here. If you're not here, it's not the same. And so we're asking uh, that you just keep coming to church, keep attending, serving, giving, and especially encourage the staff in my absence. They already do so much of the ministry. You know that. Uh, They're going to be speaking some during that time. We've got some other things scheduled, but just encouraging them. Make it easy to lead you. Can you do that for me? Can you just be encouraging and make it easy uh, to lead you? So pray for us and just keep attending, keep being a part of the service uh, and do that. And so, uh, again, I'm just so thankful for what God has done over these last 13 years. I love pastoring this church. Our family loves this church. Kind of like Pastor Jono said earlier, you know, all of our family lives uh, hours and hours away. And so you really are uh, our family. And uh, I think we had more people in our growth group when we were dedicating our kids than we had family members here. Uh, and so you are a family. We love uh, you and we're just excited about, about the future, the next season together, whatever that is, whatever God has in store. All right. Does that make sense to everybody? Um, if you have any questions after service, ask or ask one of our team and we'll answer those for you. Um, but you know, what we know at this point. And, uh, and so thanks. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us uh, to kind of reset our, our hearts and our minds as we're entering into the sermon part uh, of the service. Well, can we do that together? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It's not just letters on a page. It is the supernatural word of God. And so I pray this morning, God, that our hearts and our minds would be opened the eyes of our heart would be opened. We wouldn't just hear a preacher saying some words, but we would hear the words of God. We would receive the words of God and let them go into our hearts and minds in a way that we cannot shake free from in an hour when we're sitting at a lunch table. 
but that they would stay with us and begin to grow in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. So like I said, we are starting uh, for the next three weeks, a series of teachings called Limits. We're talking about limits. Specifically, we are talking about how to embrace God-given limits. We want to embrace God's limits, but we're also talking about how to overcome the limits that we put on ourselves. Because there's two different kinds of limits. There are the limits that God gives us that are by God's design and they are good for us. But there are also limits that we place on ourselves for a lot of different reasons that we'll talk about. And those are not good for us. We wanna, we wanna get past those and bust through those limits. And so to start this, I wanna talk about embracing God's limits, embracing God's limits. And so let's read our scripture together today. It's in Matthew chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you. Um, If you're watching at home, uh, it'll be on the screen for you there as well. But Matthew chapter four, and um, I'm gonna read this and then we're gonna go this direction on on some, some side trails in the message. And then at the end, we're gonna come back to this Matthew chapter four that we're reading together. So it's Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11. This is what it says. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. That's so encouraging to me. It's not the point of the message today, but sometimes when I'm fasting and I'm really hungry, I think I'm doing it wrong. You know, like, man, if I was really spiritual, like I wouldn't be hungry. No, Jesus was very hungry. And uh, I feel like oh, Jesus a lot. Like I'm just very hungry. Anyway, so during that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know what I just thought when I was reading that? I'm so thankful I can't turn things into bread because... I don't know where that came from. But anyway, um, I just like bread. Anyway, then the devil took him to the holy city. The second service is always a little more sporadic. I don't know what's happening in the brain up here. But anyway, then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus said, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. And next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I'll give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Verse 10, get out of here, Satan, Jesus said, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. All right, we're gonna come back to that in a a few minutes to see what Jesus could can teach us about about limits. But I don't need to tell you this. I'm pretty sure you already know this, but as a society, we don't do really well with limits, embracing healthy limits. We don't. Uh, I pulled some stats this week just to kind of help explain how we're not great at embracing limits. And I want to show you, uh, first, I want to show you how as a society, we are not great at embracing limits when it comes to food. All right. Um, Did you know that over the last 20 years, the American diet has changed dramatically in quantity of food that we eat, like food intake, but also caloric intake. 
In the 1970s, Americans ate an average of 2,160 calories a day. Today, Americans eat 2,673 calories a day on average. That's 20 to 25% more calories that we eat today than people were eating in the 1970s. It's not an accident that we're doing that. It's in everything that we eat. I have a list they're gonna throw up on the screen for you that shows the difference in food today as opposed to 20 years ago. Just a couple of examples, like an average muffin, okay? 20 years ago, it was 210 calories. Today, it's 500 calories. A pasta dish, okay? This is not even counting the Fazoli's breadsticks, just the pasta dish. It's the bread thing. I told y'all it's the bread. Anyway, the, the pasta dish, 500 calories. Now it's 1025. French fries, come on. 210, 610. Theater popcorn. Not only is, did it go from like a dollar to $37, but it's 270 calories to 630 calories. It's just an example. There was, there was more than this, but this is just an example of how we have... Uh, you know, not embrace limits when it comes to our food, how we are always pushing, pushing the boundaries. And this explains why in the 1960s, 23% of Americans were considered obese. In 2018, using the exact same standards to measure that, 42.4% of Americans are considered obese because we're eating 600 more calories per day times 365 days. That's 219,000 more calories a year. That's a lot. And this is just one example of how as a society, we have not really done a great job of embracing health limits, right? What about technology? How do we do as a society embracing technology limits? Well, um, in 2018, the average American adult spent two hours and 31 minutes of screen time on a smartphone. In March of 2020, that number had grown to four hours and 31 minutes two hours more a day screen time on a phone, right? What about when it comes to our homes? Are we embracing limits there? No. According to Zillow, the average American new home is 2,322 square feet. That sounds reasonable. But in the 1950s, a home was 850 square feet. And in the 1960s, it was 1,200 square feet. So since that time, our, our houses are twice as big as they were in the 1960s? What about money and spending? Well, uh, since 2010, consumer debt per household has increased by 31%. 31%. We're spending money that we don't have to buy things. So we could keep going, but I, you're probably demoralized at this point. I don't want to do that to you. We can all agree, I think, we can all agree that when we as human beings are left on our own, we don't naturally embrace healthy limits. We always push the boundaries. There's a speed limit, but they'll give you like 10 more. There's a spending limit, but you know, you can get a little, you could spend a little bit more. There's a weight limit, but you can go over a little bit. We, we push the boundaries. We don't embrace the limits. As a society, we always find ways to make it bigger and better and fancier and more expensive. We will always figure out a way to be busy or to obligate ourselves. We're going to work and run ourselves to the breaking point. It's what we do. Just think about your own life for, for a moment, a little self-reflection. I know that 
because of COVID, uh, some limits were forced on us and uh, maybe that reset your life a little bit. But as you think about your, your life, ha- have you embraced limits? Do you weigh less, spend less, do less than you did five years ago? Think about that for a moment. Comparing to five years ago, do you weigh less, spend less, and is your schedule doing less than you did five years ago? Or if you have some guilty pleasures or vices, think about that for a moment. Do you indulge in them less than you did five years ago? Are you drinking less, gambling less, smoking less weed, looking at less porn? Just pick some vices and guilty pleasures. Watching Netflix, social media, are you doing it less now than you did five years ago? Probably not, probably not. And it's not because you're trying to destroy your life. It's not because you're trying to be tired or trying to be broke. You don't look in the mirror and say, you know what, I wanna, I wanna push the boundaries and hurt myself today. The reason that you do it and we do it as a society is because of sin. Now, we think of sin as single actions often, and there are behavioral sins that we commit that the Bible tells us about, But sin is not just single action. Sin is human nature. Because of Adam and Eve, sin is in our human nature. And it is the reason why we have this nagging feeling of inadequacy, this nagging feeling of insecurity and not feeling loved enough or feeling incomplete. And we say all the time around here that that you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That the actions that you do are the overflow of the feelings that you feel and sin sabotages our life. That's why when you're on default, when you are set on your default mode, you're always going to go in the wrong direction, maybe gradually, maybe fast, but that's because of sin. Sin is sabotaging your life. It is the reason you have this unsettled existence, this natural dissatisfaction we need something new. You know, why, why, why is what we have not good enough? Well, there may be some legitimate logistical reasons, but it's really more of a discontentment from sin in our heart. We need something new. We need something nicer. We need, you know, we, we need to, to squelch this feeling of inadequacy and quiet this feeling of incompleteness. And we don't look in the mirror and say that to ourselves. We don't go, you know what? you know what I want to do today is I want to quiet the feeling of inadequacy and incompleteness in my life. That's not, what, that's not what we do. We just eat donuts and text people and can't get away from our ex and try to one-up people and all those things. In real life, it just looks like trying to have the nicest things or making sure your kids have every opportunity or feeling important or beautiful or loved. And sin, the human nature, the broken human spirit and soul convinces us and lies to us that the next thing will finally fix us, but it doesn't, doesn't. And so many of us, all of us at some season or another, maybe right now in our lives, we keep going from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And every time we convince ourselves that this is the thing that will finally bring it all together. This job, this relationship, this raise, this neighborhood, this car, this home, this kid, 
this outfit, this membership. And again, these are all happening at a subconscious level. We don't look at, you know, uh, a membership to something or go on a date with somebody and think, you know, by, by feeling loved by this person, I will not feel inadequate anymore. But it's, it's working. The sin inside of us is working at a subconscious level that says, this will fix you. This will fix you. This will fix you. And it never does. Short term, things feel better. But it can't hold the weight of our life and our soul and what we're trying to do. And do you remember the, the words in Psalm 23? Maybe you, um, you're probably familiar with Psalm 23 uh, at a funeral or a wedding or a service or something like that. Psalm 23, um, David described what it felt like when the Lord was his shepherd. Do you remember this? He said, the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not what? Want. This is how David described feeling like he was being led by the Lord, feeling as if he was following the Lord. He said, the way that I know that I am following the Lord and that my life is submitted to the Lord and that I'm listening to the Lord. The way that I know is that I have an internal feeling of not wanting. Which means that the more we find ourselves wanting, the more discontentment we're feeling in ourselves, it's usually an indication that we are less and less allowing the Lord to lead us. That less and less we're listening for his voice, that less and less we're going where he's leading us. And instead, we're trying to find satisfaction. If we want to continue the sheep metaphor of Psalm 23, that we're trying to find satisfaction somewhere else besides following the good shepherd. David said, I know I'm following the good shepherd when there is a peace in my soul that I'm just not wanting that much. I don't know about you, but I, I can speak for me that there are seasons of my life where there is this insatiable wanting. I want, right? And so maybe you're here, maybe you're watching or listening and you would say, I, I, I feel that. There is this this gnawing feeling of I'm missing something, I need something. And yeah, I'm a Christian, and, but, but you know what? I, I don't feel peace in my soul. I do feel myself discontent. It, it, it may be and probably is because you're not embracing God's limits and God's design for your life. So here's, here's how I want us to talk about embracing those limits today. We're gonna do it in three ways. We're gonna talk about what are some of God's limits. What are these limits I'm talking about? We're gonna talk about why God gives us those limits. And then we're gonna talk about how we can embrace God's limits. We're gonna talk about what, why, and how. What are God's limits that I'm talking about? Why does God give us limits? And how can we embrace those limits? We wanna answer those three questions. So question number one, what, what are God's limits? And I'm talking about these limits from God that I need to embrace. The Bible is filled with limits, boundaries, boundary lines. 
In the Old Testament, especially, God gave all kinds of limits to the people. He gave them days they could work and days they couldn't work and food they could eat and food they couldn't eat and places they could travel and places they couldn't travel and people they could marry and people they couldn't marry and ways they could worship and ways that they couldn't worship. I mean, the Old Testament is filled with limits, filled with boundaries. And thank goodness that because of Jesus, all of those limits are not placed on us. If you ever are reading the Old Testament or you're going through a Bible reading plan and you're reading the Old Testament, you get to some of those really, you know, those like really technical parts of like, oh my goodness, that's a great time to just stop and say, thank you for Jesus. That this is not how I am graded or judged. That all of these limits are not placed on me. That Jesus said I could carry an easy yoke and a light burden. Thank you for Jesus that all of these limits are not placed on me. But there are some limits beyond the Old Testament that are given to us. We still have limits that are given to us by God to, to guide our life. I can't give them all to you. I'm just, let me just give you three because I think these three kind of encompass a lot of, of the limits that God gives us. God, uh, as one example, puts a limit, places a limit on our schedule. Did you know that? God places a limit on our schedule. In God's design for life, he wants us to work for six days a week, but for one 24-hour period, he wants to live, he wants us to live our life not defined by production. So for a 24-hour period, he, he wants us to live in a restful place that the day, the success of the day is not defined by what we get done or what we don't get done. It's a, it's a day of rest. And the Bible calls this Sabbath. There's a name for it. It's a Sabbath rest. God modeled this for us when in creation. That for six days he created, but on the seventh day, he rested. He said, I'm not, I, it's, it's not a good day today if I create something. I'm just resting. Now, it doesn't have to be the seventh day for us, but there should be a 24-hour period where we are resting. Because this is a limit that God placed on our schedule. Here's another one. God puts limits on our spending. Did you know that? The way we manage our money. In God's design for life, he wants us to only live and save and spend 90% of what we earn because he wants the first 10% of our income to be given back to him first. So we keep 90% and do all the things that we're supposed to do with the 90%, but we give God the 10% first. There's a word for this in the Bible. It's called tithing. This is a limit that God has put on our money. 90% you manage, 10% first you give to me. This is a limit that God gives us on our, on our spending. God places limits on our love life. Did you know that? You probably did know this one because this is the one that Christians harp on the most, it seems like. But in God's design for life, sex is intended for marriage and marriage is intended for sex. And there's, there's, a, there's a name for this. The Bible calls it covenant. That in God's design for life, all the emotional and intimacy and physical pleasure and connection that comes from sex is designed to be limited to a covenant marriage. This is the way the Bible describes it. So these are just three examples where the Bible gives us boundaries and limits for our life. We could keep going. 
because the Bible is designed, uh, the Bible is God's design for living. But there is a valid question that some of you right now are thinking in your head. You're saying, Jason, wait a second. Are you talking about obeying God? Are you talking about, uh, you know, disobeying God and sinning? Because I thought we just spent two months talking about how our salvation is not based on our behavior and it's based on Jesus. But now it sounds like you're saying, I got to keep all these, these rules. Like what, which is it? Is it, is it because of what Jesus did? Is it, is it because of, of what I do? And it's such a valid question. It leads us to our, our second question we want to answer is why did God give us these limits? Why would God, creator God, care about how we schedule our calendar? Why would God care about how we spend our money? Why would God care who we sleep with? Why would God care about, about those things? And it's kind of a trick question. And here's why I say it's a trick question, because the answer will only make sense if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because limits are always about love. Limits are always about love. And if you're a parent, you know this is true because you give your kids all kinds of limits. Now, are you giving your kids limits because you hate them? Are you giving your kids limits because you want to destroy their life and make them miserable and bored and you want them to be odd at school and, and, and be made fun of? No, that's not why you give them limits. You give them limits because you love them and you know that a life without limits will destroy them. You know that as a parent. And so, you know, you, you can't eat Doritos for breakfast. This is a real struggle at our house right now. I'm not kidding. Andrea leaves early. For, she teaches at school. And so it's me and the kids in the morning, which is, needs its own reality show. But uh, I come downstairs the other day, Zeke just sitting on the counter, eating Doritos, 7 a.m. I'm like, buddy, have you eaten breakfast? He's like, I'm eating it right now. I said, well, you can't eat Doritos for breakfast. Like we got to get you some some food. He's like, no, I'll just eat this. Well, in that moment, when I take the Doritos from him and make him eat like eggs or something, am I doing that because I'm like, I want to make your life miserable today, Zeke? No, I'm doing that because if, if there's no limit on what you can eat for breakfast, we're headed for trouble. You know, that's true. I know that's true. And so it's the same, it's the same with God. It, the only difference is it's better because as a parent, I'm flawed, I'm sinful. And so there are times I am overprotective. There are times that I do too put, put too many limits on my kids. But with God, it's never imperfect. It's never wrong. It's never overbearing. It's always the appropriate amount. And so all of God's limits, every single one of them is because of his love for you. God gives you limits because he loves you. Now, if you don't believe that, then I would ask you, what do you believe you're doing when you're limiting your children? You limit them because you love them. God does the same thing for you. His design is the best way for you to live the best life. Now, I want to say that again because this is a really important truth that you need to swallow and it goes down kind of tough. Okay, God's design for life is always the best way for you to live your life. <laughs> do you really believe that? Like, don't just say yes because you're in church. Like, do you really believe that? Really think about it. 
Where there is an area of your life where you believe or practice something that God designed differently, do you really believe that God is the creator and knew exactly what he was doing? Or do do you assume you know something that God doesn't know? Or, Or in that moment, do you believe you know better than God? Now, of course, again, you don't look in the mirror or look to the sky and say, God, I know better, so... But this is why limits is such a spiritual issue because by embracing limits, you are admitting I'm not God. But when we don't embrace limits, what we are saying is I know better than God, right? And this is always what the devil tries to convince us of that we know something God doesn't know. You remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? God creates them, he puts them in the garden and he set a boundary, think about that. First relationship, first people, first setting and God puts a limit on them. What'd he say? He said, you can eat anything and you can do anything but you can't have the, the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So instead of giving them free reign to do whatever they want, he gave them freedom with boundaries. Freedom of boundaries. Now, why would he do that? Wouldn't a God who is a loving God just say like, do whatever you want? He did, he did that because without limits, you would never have to surrender or submit to God. It's not submission if you wanna do it, right? And just like Adam and Eve, the Christian life is unbelievable freedom with boundaries. So what did the devil do? The devil shows up to Adam and Eve and what did he tell them? He said, I can't believe God put this limit on you. I can't believe God put this boundary on you. Did God really say that? He probably didn't even say it that way. What'd he say? He didn't say that, right? Devil shows up and says, God put this limit on you because he doesn't want you to really experience the best of life. That's what he told Eve. And she believed him. And so instead of accepting God's limit, Adam and Eve rebelled. And what happened? They learned that God wasn't lying to them. He was loving them. The limit that he had set for them was for their good. So think of it like this. One of the popular analogies used when describing the freedom of the Christian life, kind of in apologetics, one of the analogies that people use is of a fish. That if a fish was to say, you know what? I'm tired of being restricted in this water and everybody telling me what I gotta do and I gotta swim and you know use my fins or whatever. I wanna be free. Somebody put me up there on the land. I'm tired of this restriction. If the fish got out of the water, and was put on land, what would happen? He wouldn't be free. He'd be dead. And so you can't really have freedom unless you have boundaries, right? And the same is true for your soul. When you say, I don't wanna be stuck following these religious old fashioned rules anymore. I want freedom that the Bible teaches us over and over and over again that the way sin sabotages our life is that when we actually get what we want, we realize that it is not what is best for us. It is what is most harmful to us. Maybe not initially, of course not initially. Initially, if sin stunk at the beginning, we'd never do it. But eventually we realize, you know what? I thought this was freedom, 
but I realize I am less free now than I was before I got what I thought I wanted. And see, limits only make sense with love. This is why you can take a, I'm gonna stereotype for a second here. This is why you can take a 25-year-old guy and say, man, you really need to settle down. And he says, settle down? I don't need to settle down. I'm living the dream, man. I'm just, I go wherever I want. I spend my money however I want. I sleep with whoever I want. Man, don't, don't tie me down. And then at some point, he is compelled by love. He's compelled by love. And what you had tried to convince him of, but could never successfully convince him of, now he gladly embraces limits. Why? Because love. He's walking through the mall wearing a pink diaper bag. People are like, man, that's a stupid looking bag. He's like, I love it. Look, driving a minivan? He said, I will never drive a minivan. How many minivan dads we got in the room? Come on. Come on, minivan dads. I will never drive a minivan. And then you're like, you know, if you put the seat down, you got a little more room than a cab and a truck right here. Seat warmers? You're like, man, this is nice. Buddies are going to go on a trip to Vegas, and you're like, you know, I think I probably just need to stay home. I'm like, what? Why? Love? If, if it's right, you don't have to look at the groom before the ceremony and say, now listen, in just a few moments, the preacher is going to say, till death do you part. Now, I know you don't want to, but make sure you say I do. <laughs> Hopefully, nobody had to have that talk with you. The preacher stands up there, and, and in essence, the preacher says, because you have been compelled by love, do you commit? to love this person till death do you part and embrace the limits of marriage. And the person says, I do. Limits only make sense in love. Limits without love is, is it's bondage, it's the ball and chain. It, it feels restrictive. That's why so many of you ran away from the church and you're making your way back now because somebody tried to give you all the limits, but they never gave you the love. They never explained the love. But when you get the love, you embrace the limits and you're happy about it. You're happy about it. And so God, this perfect heavenly father says to you, I'm the creator I know how everything in this world works at its absolute best. And you wouldn't take a, a Rolex watch and say, you know, it's a good watch, but it would make a great coaster. Because that's not what it was created for. You don't take a TV and say, you know, it's a good TV, but it'd make a great Frisbee. Because that's not what it was created for. And your money and your body and your sex life and, and, and your family life, God created all of this and has the absolute best way to operate and live your life. But until your heart is captured by love, you will resent God's limits. But when your heart is captured by love, you will embrace God's limits. So how do we do it? We've looked at what some of the limits are. We've looked at why God limits. He limits because of love. We know that. But how, how, do, we, how do we do that? This is the last question we're trying to answer. How can we embrace God's limits? Well, at the beginning of the sermon, a long time ago, we read Matthew chapter four. 
verses 1 through 11, where Jesus was tempted. And this was a real event uh, when Satan was trying to get Jesus to sin and derail God's plan for our salvation. This is one of those stories in the Bible that feels fiction. It feels made up, like it's just kind of a, uh, has a, you know, has a, a meaning to it. But it was, this is a real event. And it was such an important event because Satan was try- Satan knew what was going to happen three-ish years later and how salvation for mankind was going to be made possible. And so he showed up to tempt Jesus. And if he could have convinced Jesus to sin, it would have derailed God's plan for salvation. And so the reason I read these verses to you is because they show us a powerful truth that Jesus knew that allowed him to embrace God's limits. Let me show you. The devil came to Jesus in the desert and he tempted him three times. We read it. The first time he said, if you're the son of God, turn the stones into bread. The second time he said, if you're the son of God, jump off the building. The third time he said, if you're the son of God, bow down and worship me. Now, as I say those to you, do you notice any common denominator in all three of those temptations? The common denominator is that all three times the devil said, if you are the son of God. In other words, Satan's plan to get Jesus to defy God's limits was to prove himself, was to prove his identity. And why does that matter? Because I want you to think about the significance of the fact that even Jesus embraced God's limits. He was the son of God. He quite literally was unlimited. But because he became a man and became a human being, he said, I'm laying, this is what Philippians 2 says, I'm laying aside the, the God aspect and I'm embracing the human aspect, which means I am embracing God's limits. And Satan shows up, the same thing he said to Eve, the same thing he says to you and me is the same thing he said to Jesus, don't embrace God's limits. Don't embrace God's limits. Why suffer when you can get food and you're hungry or power or or glory? Don't do it God's way. I've got a better way. Don't suffer. Don't embrace God's limits. Do whatever you want, however you feel, whatever you need. God's making it hard on you. God is holding out on you. But what did Jesus do? Jesus said, No, because God said, I can't do that. God said, don't do that. Jesus embraced God's limits. And we we think, well, that was easy because he's Jesus, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that our savior, Jesus Christ, was tempted in every way. That he felt the fire and the furnace of temptation that you and I feel. Those moments when we say, I can't withstand this anymore. There's something inside of me that is driving me and I want it so bad that Jesus felt that exact same intensity in his temptation. Jesus wasn't in the moment and was like, oh, well, I'm God, so this won't be effective on me. That he felt what we feel, but he did not sin. The Bible says that, that in that moment when he was hungry because he hadn't eaten for 40 days, that he wanted to eat really badly. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but it does say he was very hungry. But in that moment of temptation, he embraced God's limits. 
quoted scripture where the Bible had said, this is a limit, don't do this, right? Now, how, how did he do that? It's not because he just was God and didn't feel it. We know he felt it. It's not that it was just easy for him to never sin because we know the Bible tells us that that was not the case. How did he do it? Well, I wanna show you. I know you've probably already closed your Bible a long time ago, but Matthew chapter four, if you just flip back one page, we read Matthew chapter four, but if you flip back one page to Matthew chapter three, something else happened right before Jesus went into the wilderness. Right before, it's in verse 16, Jesus was baptized. So 40 days before Satan showed up to tempt Jesus, God showed up. And this is what it says in verse 16. It says, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. This is so powerful. Listen, get this. 40 days later, Satan shows up and says, if you're the son of God, prove it. But God had only already shown up and said, you're my son. You see that? The very thing that Satan was using to try to get Jesus to exceed God's limits is the very thing that God reaffirmed to Jesus before he went into the furnace of temptation. Jesus comes up out of the water and God says, you're my son, I love you, I'm proud of you, and you bring me great joy. Now listen, here's what I know. But so many of you in this room, you never got those words from your father. And do you know what you did? You spent your life trying to live a certain way so that your dad would say those words to you. So I want you to imagine for a moment, because you know what that feels like to not have the affirmation of a father. I want you to think for a moment, if Jesus had gone into the wilderness, 40 days, very hungry, showing up, being tempted, and he didn't feel the love and the affirmation of his father, what do you think he would have done? He would have done the same thing that you and I do. He would have said, I'll prove it. I'll show you I'm the son of God. I'll show you how powerful I am. I'll show you how unlimited I am. But God showed up and said, listen, in essence, 40 days from now, Satan's gonna show up and say, if you are the son of God, prove it, but you ain't gotta prove anything. You are my son. I am proud of you. You bring me great joy. Now, here's what's crazy. Jesus hadn't even done anything yet. Like you go read it. He hadn't turned water into wine. He hadn't walked on water. He hadn't fed 5,000. He hadn't done, hadn't done one miracle. He had not done anything. And God says, I don't love you because of what you do. I love you because of who you are. You're mine. And what does that have to do with you? Because you've probably never had a dove come out of the sky and you've probably never heard God's voice audibly telling you like, I really love you. you I'm proud of you. Here's what it has to do with you and me. As long as you're trying to prove something, you will never embrace God's limits. You won't. As long as you don't truly believe that you are loved by God, not based on what you do, but who you are, you'll never embrace God's limits. How could you? How could you embrace God's design for rest and work when you have to be productive and accomplished to prove that you're important? See, if you're not convinced that God loves you, no matter how productive you are, you will have to exceed his limits for work because you've got to prove something to him. How could you embrace God's design for for spending and saving and giving if you have to have nice things to convince yourself that you are significant? You can't. 
How could you refrain from sex when you have to be desired by someone to feel attractive? You can't. And see, as long as you're not convinced that God sees Jesus when he sees you and that God loves you and that God is proud of you and that you bring him joy, you will spend all of your life trying to make him proud of you, make him love you, bring him joy. You'll overwork yourself, you'll overspend yourself, you'll overindulge yourself. You won't be happy. You'll be tired, burned out, broke and lonely. And there's always something to prove right on the other side of the line of God's boundary. This person will make me feel loved. This title will make me feel important. This purchase will make me feel cool. But the reason we cross those lines is because we're not convinced that we are loved, that we are important, that we are cool. doesn't work in that analogy, but you know what I mean? I mean, God probably thinks you're cool. Let's just go with it. But what would happen if you really believe that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus? What would really happen if today you believe God was pleased with you? That what would happen if today you really believe that you brought God joy? You know what would happen? You would say, the Lord is my shepherd. I just don't feel like I'm wanting as much anymore. The only way I know to describe it is like, it's like I'm able to lie down in green pastures. And can I be honest with you? Most of my life, it's been really hard for me to just lie down and just rest, just be okay, be in me, because I got something to prove. But when you really believe you're loved by God, God's proud of you. When you really believe it, there's a settling in the soul. There's a settling in the soul, less wanting, more resting, embracing of God's limits. So you'll never really embrace God's limits until you really receive God's love. Let me say it again. You'll never really embrace God's limits until you really receive God's love. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. <laughs> thank you, God, that uh, you, your plan to, to save me was your son and what he did on the cross. It was not my performance or behavior or proving that I'm lovable or proving that I'm savable. And God, I pray you'd forgive me for all the times in my life where I thought your limits was somehow holding me back or your limits were somehow um, a detriment to me. I, I, I forgot that it was love. I forgot that you were the creator. I forgot that you were the designer. I forgot that you know best. I was trying to prove something to myself, to you, to somebody else. But God, I pray that today you would help me and every person listening to my voice to 
follow you, to let you be our shepherd. And that as we really believe that you love us, you've saved us, that our soul would stop wanting and it would settle and allow us to lie down, to embrace the life you've designed for us to live. Every head bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. I want to give you an opportunity to uh, start a relationship with Jesus today. We do this every week and it's a moment that we give because we think, you know, significant moments require action. And so here's what's going to happen. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to raise your hand. If you would say, I want to start a relationship with Jesus. I have been trying to prove my worth. I have been trying to make God love me. I have been trying to be good enough, but my faith has been in myself. And, 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 and I'm more tired and more broken and more lonely. And my way's not working. And I, I want God's way. And so I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. that's you, in just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance, but you're going to say, I'm committing my life to Jesus Christ. He's going to be the leader. He's going to be the shepherd. I'm going to follow him. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you down front or make you stand up or anything like that. We're just going to pray a prayer together. So I nobody's looking around. If that's you, if you'd say, yeah, I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ today, would you just throw your hand up? Just me and you. I'm ready to start a relationship with Jesus. Tired of doing it my way. Yeah doing it God's way. Tired of being lonely and tired and broken, running, searching, ready to embrace the life God wants me to live. Anybody else? All right, everybody stand up with me. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray a prayer together. And uh, this is a really simple prayer. It's just a repeat after me prayer. It's not the words that are most important part. What, what's the most important part is, is what's happening in your heart and your soul, what you're believing. And we just put this little repeat after me prayer together just to help you get started on a conversation between you and, and God. And, uh, and so I'm gonna ask everybody to pray this prayer with me for those who raised their hand, maybe at home in the room, praying it for the first time, first time in a really long time, maybe. We're gonna pray this prayer together so that we can give them confidence and boldness to start their relationship with Jesus Christ today. So will you pray this with me? Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. Please save me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I give you my life. I give you control. The next time I fall, help me to get up and to run to you, not away from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we celebrate with those who gave their life to Christ today?